0: I've been reminded many times over in my email this week that this week is Amazon.com's biggest event of the year. Have any of you heard that? It's Prime Day, but it's so big now it's two, Prime Days. And so the, the excitement is building, it's like Christmas in July. But I have to admit, there's something magnetic about Amazon, I'm just kind of pulled to it. I find myself in a store looking at something. I'm like, I wonder if I could get that cheaper on Amazon. So I pull up my phone and I'm searching, sometimes yes, sometimes no. But one of the things that's frustrated me about myself, and I don't know if this is true of you, I find myself getting an object or something that I want to buy, and then I I go to that website, and then I go down to the user reviews, and I just find myself reading forever and ever and ever, trying to figure out, and what's the general consensus here? And I think it's made everybody somewhat of an authority, right? You buy something, suddenly you're an authority. You have an opinion, you have power, and you can influence other people, so post it online and allow them to filter that through their authority and their control and figure out if they want to buy it or not. For me, it just kind of paralyzes me, and I put things in a wish list, and I think about it, and I don't commit. Uh, But sometimes I do buy things. But here's what has struck me about all of this, all right? I've got this sense in me that I don't want anybody to get one over on me. If there's a better deal to be found, I'm going to find it. And I don't want Amazon or any other vendor to win because I want to make the best decision and I want to be in control. Well, (laughs) what that reveals to me is that I have a great invested care on my online purchases not to get the wool pulled over my eyes or to get the deal taken away from me. But here's what I think I'm seeing in this text and how I can bridge Amazon Prime days back to 1 John, all right? (laughs) I think that there's a tendency in us to have this sense that we want to be absolutely sure we're not going to be tricked or duped by those trying to sell us something. But at the same time, we're just not as careful about the spiritual messages getting into our minds and hearts. I don't think we take the same care to ensure that the opinions spiritually coming at us, kind of like those Amazon product reviews, aren't just getting in there and becoming a part of the mix of things that we think, but that we actually do have an authority to go to that's actually revealed the ultimate spiritual reality to us and that we can trust what this authority has to say. This whole point of this letter of 1 John really is to give us confidence that we, what we believe is actually true. Why there are so many times where John says, I am writing to you so that you can know this. Why at the end of his gospel of John, he wrote, I have written these things so that you may know that you believe, so that you may know the Lord Jesus Christ. So often we act as if we can't really know. But we can know. And that's the whole point that John's trying to hammer home week after week. You can know. Not only that Jesus died and rose again, but that he did so for you. And that you, right now, belong to him. You can know that. But in order to really figure out some things, he's also given us a command that can help us in that process. He's brought up before what others have called the doctrinal test, figuring out the the teaching that someone is giving and how to determine if that teaching really is real. Um, Earlier in chapter two of 1 John, John told us that you can gauge a person's message by the life that that person lives. On the one hand, if, if they don't have love for others, if they don't have true love for God, then you really ought to take into consideration what they're saying because, Those who are teaching about Jesus Christ have been changed by Jesus Christ. Well, in this passage of scripture, he is again bringing up the doctrinal test. How to determine what you're hearing, but this time not based on the lifestyle of the person as much as another factor that he's going to bring in. I would say that most of the time, as I've read this passage and as I know myself, I'd say the trouble that I get into the most is that I tend to marginalize or forget the Lord Jesus. And it's usually at that time that I get into the most trouble. But it's when I focus on the Lord Jesus again that all of my problems become focused on the one who can handle them and who can help me and who can help me to be what he wants me to be. And so that's why I think our theme today is that followers of Jesus must test the spiritual messages they hear in order to discern the real Jesus Christ. That's why we're, we're called on to test the spirits. And that theme again, followers of Jesus must test the spiritual messages they hear in order to discern the real Jesus. Our outline this morning, uh, let me show you what it is. In the first point, we're going to talk about the command to test the spirits the command to test the spirits. In the second place, the power to overcome the spirits. And in the third place, the word to reveal the spirits. And so let's begin with the command to test the spirits. Look at again, verse one. John says, beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many pro- false prophets have gone out into the world first thing that we need to look at is how to conduct this test. Did you notice the first word that begins this is the word beloved? Beloved. And so as John wants people to to do a test, he wants them first of all to know their position and what their value is to God. Believers in the church are called on to have a ministry of discernment But that flows out of a heart of love. The apostle John knew that there's a real tendency, I think, to take a ministry of discernment and actually go on something of a witch hunt, looking for everybody who's got the wrong message and exposing them. But in the meantime, Jesus kind of gets pushed off to the side and the main objective becomes figuring out who's wrong. And if you doubt this, you can look at many websites that have discernment, and sometimes they're very, very helpful and good, but there are some others. The main focus seems to be about proving how everyone is wrong, and the spirit in it is quite mean. Um, I think it degrades other people. But here, what John is doing is he's starting with this word, beloved, and he's calling us to reckon with the reality that God loves us. And this ministry of testing and figuring out the messages we're hearing, it's not to be done in a spirit that is seeking to expose for the sake of exposing, but for the sake of identifying so that we can find and identify the one who loves us. John knew that we are loved by God, and the command to discern truth from error is attached to a deep and jealous love that God has for his people, and one that we too are to adopt. So in humility, we realize that the worst of the messages out there could very likely be found inside of us. And instead of being cynical, defensive, and expecting the worst of everyone, we need to adopt a spirit that assumes that God is at work, but then we need to apply the test that God gives us to apply in every situation for everybody who's speaking the word of God even me this morning. All right? Now, why is this test necessary? Well, the world is a dangerous place. And world is mentioned several times in these six verses. There are predominant phrases that appear as you study the book of 1 John. Next week, um, it's the word love. And as a heads up, I'd encourage you to read through the rest of uh, 1 John 4 and try to find every occurrence of love that you can in anticipation for next week, and you'll be a step ahead. But for this week, one of the main words that appears is world. And what's revealed about the world is that it's a dangerous place. There are false prophets who have gone out into the world, and we're still in the world. We've already learned from Pastor Sam's preaching that we face three enemies that are a part of the world's system. Those are the lust of the flesh, that's the desire to get things and seeing things that will make us feel good, the lust of the eyes, seeing something and coveting, and the pride of life, that desire to boast about who we are to everybody and everyone, right? So if, if those things are not bad enough, we've got preachers who gladly attach themselves to those three things and make those three things the focus of their ministry, And they make it sound spiritual, really good. So that when we hear it, there's just a hint of Jesus. There's just a hint of spiritual things. And we think, well, that must be right. And we go and get trapped in a system that's a part of the world. Ephesians tells us this. Ephesians 6, 10 through 12 tells us that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the authorities, the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Likewise, 2 Corinthians 10, 3 to 5, tells us that we don't wage war in the flesh. It says there, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. You read through the New Testament and you encounter verses like these. And it seemed like John and Paul, Peter, were all engaging at various levels and at different times with heretics who were coming into the church, false teachers coming into the church, whose main objective was to gather people around them and pull them away from Jesus Christ. And the main part of this battle to remember is that it's not man against man, but it's us fighting these insidious demonic powers that are organizing these false religions and sending agents among us. It's a dangerous place. The world is a dangerous place and the stakes are high. Um, one thing I've been reminded of time and again in First John is that the sides are clearly drawn. I mean, John does not speak in grays, does he? He says, God is light. And in him, there is no darkness at all, all right? That beginning message that he gives us leaves no room for ambiguity, the, the sides are clearly drawn, the stakes are very high, And God's people are called on to engage in this ministry. And make no mistake, it's God's people who are called on to engage in a discerning ministry of all that they hear. John does not address the elders of the church alone, although they are included in the beloved. Praise God. He does not address the the, the teachers of the church, although they are included if they're in Christ. He addresses the beloved of God. This is everyone. Everyone. And everyone has this holy obligation, this duty to obey God's command and to listen well and to discern what they're hearing. So what is the test? Well the test is this, listen to what they say about Jesus. Listen to what they say about Jesus. Look at verse two, by this you know the spirit of God. There's another one of John's you know statements. Well, I want to know what the Spirit of God is doing, don't you? I want to know what he's up to in this world. And so he says, by this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. All right, so let's begin with that first phrase, by this you know the Spirit of God. I want to talk for just a minute about how people look for the Holy Spirit and get back to what John is saying here about how we can discern what the Holy Spirit is up to. Some people look for the Holy Spirit in every leaf that's falling from every tree. They're looking for signs. They're looking for symbols and signs and symbols and signs. Maybe there's something over here that indicates the Spirit's movement among us. These are the experienced people, all right? And then you've got those who... Just ignore the Holy Spirit, and they're doing so by not studying him, not focusing on him, because after all, he is the shy member of the Trinity. He doesn't want to draw attention to himself. He's drawing attention to Jesus. So certainly, we got to get our our doctrine and our understanding right, and we don't need to worry about the Holy Spirit. After all, we don't want to be charismatics, right? Those are the, the doctrine people. Right, maybe you fit into one of those categories, the experienced people or the doctrine people. And you may not like my, my stereotypical categorizations here. Here's what we have to recognize. Doctrine and experience are not enemies. And the ministry of the Holy Spirit is to bring our experiences in line with the truth of God's word. And the people who would say, Well, it doesn't matter so much what your theology is as long as you're sincere. I would say that you may not want to focus on theology, but nonetheless, you are a theologian. And if you say something like that, you're indicating you're a bad theologian, right? Theology is just the study of God. And all of us are saying things about God all the time by either explicitly describing who he is or by describing what life in this world is like, and we may not bring God into it at all, and we're implying that he's not a God who's in control. He's not a God with all power. So be mindful, friends, that the Holy Spirit's ministry is to bring the doctrine, the truth of God's word, which we must be dedicated to and sincerely pursuing in line with our experience, so that our lives as people of God's word and our experience of being spirit-filled people who are in love with Christ and loving others and using our spiritual giftedness for the sake of others and for the glory of God, that those two things are not opposite. But we must see what the Spirit is doing here. John says that every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, verse two. Now, that word confesses, we just focus on that for a minute. Every spirit that confesses is, in Greek, what's known as a third-person active indicative. That's very boring to say that in this setting here. But I looked these things up because it's important to me to recognize what's happening here, even in the grammar, because I read this and I think, well, John, I could, I could pull some people off the street and I could give them a 100 bucks and tell them, say that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. And they'll say, Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, but they wouldn't mean it. They'd just be a hundred bucks richer and then they would go out and not evidence any change or that that message that they confessed had any real (laughs) bearing on their lives. Is that what confesses means? No it's not. Why is that verb important? Because it's indicating something. It's not so much what a person has said in the past one time, but it's really about what's coming out of their mouths now. If they are confessing something right now, is it in line with what John says a preacher or a teacher of God's word should be saying? What is it that they should be saying? Well, it's that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. I have questions this week. Why did John choose this phrase? I mean, for example, why not say, Jesus Christ is God? Why not say that? I mean, it it seems like in our day and age, that may need to be a little bit more emphasized. But what you have in this statement right here is exactly what God's people need for all time. Not only to know whether somebody is orthodox, they're teaching the right thing, but whether they know who Jesus Christ really is. If you consider it, these two names, Jesus Christ, it's not just his first and last name. When the angel came and said, you should call his name Jesus, he said, because he will save his people from his sin, from their sin. And when he said he will be the Christ, this was the long awaited Messiah. The one who was in the presence of the Ancient of Days before he ever came to the earth. And now we have this combination of Jesus, the one who was born in in Bethlehem and who grew up in Nazareth and who ministered all over Israel, is the Christ, the one who came from the presence of God. And that's why even the grammar says, Christ has come. He didn't say he was born. It says he has come, indicating that he had to come from somewhere to some place. And it was in the flesh. This is called the doctrine of the incarnation. That's a big word. It just means to put flesh on something. You know, you have chili con carne. You know, that's chili with some meat, right? Well, incarnation is putting meat on the bones. It's in fleshing something. And what it means is that Jesus came... And he actually had a real body. He actually walked on this earth. And he was 100% human. The body that he was given and that he came out of the womb as, it was him. This was the Christ. And in some mystery of God, the fullness of God met full humanity in one person, Jesus the Christ. And our hope is that while he was in the flesh, through his virgin birth, through his perfect life, through his substitutionary death on the cross for the sins of the world, and for his resurrection from the dead to life everlasting, that that is our hope, right? These things are not unimportant, they are central. Christ's virgin birth, his substitutionary, obedient life, his substitutionary death, and his resurrection from the dead. These things are core to our faith. And John says that anyone who confesses that, who doesn't just say that once upon a time and then continues saying other things that are different than that. No, the one who is confessing this as the core of the ministry, that is the one who is of the spirit of God. Anybody else who pushes that away or marginalizes that or does not make Jesus, that Jesus known, that is the spirit of antichrist. Again, no middle ground with John. You're from the spirit of God or you're of the spirit of the antichrist. And every time he uses that phrase spirit, what he's talking about is what is the authority or the power behind the preacher and what is being given voice to As I think about what we are up against, I look at the text again and I see that every spirit, verse three, that does not confess Jesus is not from God. And really what this is talking about is that those who do not confess that Jesus has come in the flesh are not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. This refers back to what Pastor Sam taught us He taught a a message here called Overcoming the Antichrist. I encourage you to go back and listen to that if you have not. This message really just builds on that. And as you can see in the book of 1 John, he introduces a topic, and then he goes to another topic, and then he comes back again to that topic that he did a little bit earlier and tells you a little bit more about it. And that's what's happening here in 1 John 4 this morning. But I was burdened because I know that our situation oftentimes is not the same as what John dealt with when attacks on Jesus occur. At that time, there was a group of folks who were gathering the people that John ministered to and were trying to teach them that Jesus was just a man and that at a certain point in his life, the Christ, the spirit of the Christ, descended on him, perhaps at his baptism, and helped him live the life and ministry that he was supposed to live But then on the cross, the the spirit of the Christ left him, and then he died. And then the spirit of the Christ helped him rise from the dead. This is blasphemy, (coughs) because it's saying that he was just a man that had something inserted into him to help him along the way. Uh, This is just flat out blasphemy. And John was countering this, and that's why he emphasized so much that Jesus, the Christ, has come in the flesh throughout his whole life, from the virgin birth to his resurrection. But what do we tend to have as the message of the Antichrist here, and what do we face as a church today? Well, there's always the popular model of Jesus as the moral teacher or a good man. Jesus as the moral teacher or a good man. This is the one that enjoys the teaching. This is the one that sees Jesus as compassionate, sees Jesus as earnest and sincere. But the death of Jesus really messes up this model because the death is seen as a failure. But the death is seen as Jesus not really being in control and being delivered up as a martyr for his cause. If this is all Jesus was, then let me encourage you not to follow him. I'd at least say don't follow this version of Jesus. Jesus. It will get you nowhere. Uh, Jesus as the backup savior, perhaps you've dealt with this preaching about Jesus before. When you've done all that you can, and when you've tried your best, when you've obeyed God to the best of your ability, then God, if you trust him, will throw Jesus into your scale and make up what you couldn't do. So many religions today make that their main emphasis. And what happens is you try and you try and you try to live for God, but you don't experience any power. The Spirit of God is not in that. There's Jesus as the Savior who overlooks sin. Jesus as the Savior who overlooks sin. Now, in order to get this kind of a version of Jesus, you have to rip a lot of your Bible out and throw it away. And you might think that, well, people just don't do this nowadays. I read a review of a book that was written um, by someone who pastors a church and they were teaching an ethic. In this case, it was a, a sexual ethic. And the ethic was God has created you to enjoy your life, even your life of sex, and you can do whatever seems right to you. I don't know how they got that. But one of the the major celebrations was somebody who stood up at one of the retreats of this church and said, I finally found my Jesus. But these parts of the Bible that are written by Paul and Peter, John, this whole Old Testament, the person ripped those pages out and threw them in the fire. And what was left held it up and said, this is my Bible. Um, That was like last year. I, 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 I hear about these things. And these aren't just first century problems. These are current contemporary things that John wants us to be aware of. Not to lose sight that Jesus and his apostles that he sent out will be attacked. And that we need to be aware of that. There's also the Jesus as the therapist. I don't know if you know about this one. It's it's kind of this image where you're lying on a couch and Jesus is over in his professional chair And he asks you, how do you feel? How can I help you? All right, so a few years ago, 2005, there were a group of people from the University of uh, North Carolina, Chapel Hill. They took a survey of a lot of teenagers in a lot of church, a lot of evangelical churches, and they asked them what they believed. And here are the, the five things that they found out they believed. And they kind of summarized these, and this was their catechism, not officially, but What was revealed? One, a God who exists, who created and ordered the world and watches over human life on earth. Two, God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other as taught in the Bible and by most world religions. Three, the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. Four, God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except when God is needed to resolve a problem. And five, good people go to heaven when they die. These were teenagers in our churches, and this was 14 years ago now. They are now our millennials, and what what is needed is the recognition that this type of teaching, which is coming from a a mixture of all kinds of things, probably the, the prevalence of the internet and all the teachers that you could ever find and hope to fill up your Your playlist with and your podcasts with, there's there's more opportunities now than ever to be discipled by Netflix, to be discipled by the music that you listen to, to be discipled by all kinds of influences that are just imperceptibly getting into your mind and heart. And what results is what was known and titled moralistic therapeutic deism. Because he, Jesus was not in those five points, but where he does come in is he helps you get out of trouble so that your life can be happy again. Now this morning, if, if you're in that boat, my encouragement and my exhortation to you is to reckon with this. Your goal in life is not to be more happy. And that's not God's goal for you either. God's goal for you is that you would know Jesus and that you would submit to him and be in a relationship with him that allows him to call the shots and to experience the joy of knowing him. I wanna give you a warning of three areas of susceptibility that each of us need to be aware of that I've experienced and observed in close friends. The first is this, there's a longing for more of a spiritual experience. And this is a longing for power and not weakness. I can remember one time, this is while I was still in Beijing, a, a person, successful business lady came up and told me that she was leaving our church. And it surprised me, she was one of the, the pillars, the early members of that church. And she told me that she just had been frustrated by what just seemed to be too much meekness in the ministry of our church, really which was weakness to her. She wanted, she, she thought if, if we're gonna be successful spiritually then we need power and authority. She had been attracted to and then started attending a church that popularized within China, the teaching of Benny Hinn. Um, I didn't expect it of this person. And I was really discouraged. I know I don't normally throw names out there, but this time I was discouraged enough. And that is what happened for her. Um, I think eventually she came back to the church where I pastored long after I was gone and another pastor was there. But it, you burn out of those environments. Power like that is not what Jesus was talking about when he talks about overcoming. All right, the second thing to be aware of is longing for relief from the spiritual war. Longing for happiness in this life, but not ultimately joy in Christ. Um, my wife and I knew another couple. and We had lunch at their house one day. You, you all wouldn't know any of them. Um, And I knew that before they were married, there was an intense struggle with sin. And finally, when they did get married, it didn't fix that problem. I don't need to get into all the details. But that's something for young people here to know. Marriage does not fix your problems, okay? Uh, But what happens when you realize that is so crucial then to what you will do about it. I recognized after some years of being away from them that they had gotten so weary in that fight that they were looking for anything to help them to focus on what encouraging things they could. They too started to pay attention to some of the prosperity teachers of the day. Um, Some who were teaching that the main goal of this life is your uplifting outlook on life and so that you have words of power to speak into your situation. And if you have that, then you have confidence and you can go out there and do anything. They looked to that teaching to help them to resolve the problem of sin and to get out of what I perceived was Jesus continually ministering to them in the midst of that situation to help them. And finally, three, the longing to be seen as smart. There's nothing wrong with being smart. So let me encourage you. I'm not saying that it's better to be dumb, okay? <laughs> but here's what I am saying. It, it's, it's wrong, I think, to have a main longing in your heart to be seen as smart. Um, this is what happens when you prioritize intellectual arguments over spirit-filled obedience. I think this is a lot of what was happening here in the time of 1 John. People were so enamored by ideas that others were sharing and how they shared those ideas, they were attracted to that. I can remember sitting across from, really, who was, I considered a brother in church one time. And he started to tell me some of his views about Jesus. And he said, I really don't think Jesus needs to be God. I don't don't think that's necessary. And I said, where are you getting that idea? And he said, well, I've been looking on these blogs, and there's this one blog in particular. I like how they reason through things. I like like how they get to their conclusions, and it makes a lot of sense. And I realized at that point that there wouldn't be much arguing with him. And I actually said, no, that's just flat out wrong. That's heresy, and you need to reject it. And he said, well, I just don't think so. I think we need to be open in the church and we don't have to be so dogmatically convinced of these things. I said, there may be some things where we can soften a bit, but on Jesus, we're dogmatic. And on what the, God, what the word of God reveals, we'll reveal that and we'll hold it. But you know what? The, the reasoning that he shared with me got kind of wormed into my head and I started to think about it and think about it and it started to affect me. And this is what I realize and what I'll share with you. There's not a lot of room to focus much on what heretics are saying. Instead, recognize what they say, recognize it as wrong, and move back to the gospel of Jesus Christ. and focus on him. Here's what the Apostle Paul told us in Second Timothy: "I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ, Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead." your passions, and that literally means just what you want. If what you want is a message that relieves the stress of this life and takes away the difficulty, it takes away the weakness that will lead you to those who have messages like that and they are endlessly popular. The Spirit of God says, look to Jesus. And in the authority of God's word that we read just in the past two weeks in 1 John 3, he says, 1 John 3, verse 6, look to Jesus who appeared to destroy the works of the devil. Last week in 1 John chapter 3, verse 16, look to Jesus who laid down his life for us. This is the Jesus that we are to look to. And I would say something to the teachers here this morning. We should never teach the Bible without relating it back to Jesus. Either how it anticipates him coming from the Old Testament or in the New Testament, how it reveals him. If it's some sacrificial system, how it points to Jesus. If it's some moral code and ethics of how to live and act, well, it's because of Jesus. And it's by Jesus that you can do those things. Charles Spurgeon was a Baptist preacher in the 1800s, very well known, very popular. Um, but his message wasn't loved by everyone. Some people criticized him because he taught Jesus too much in his sermons. And he's well known about responding to those kind of comments by saying something like this. The motto of all true servants of God must be, we preach Christ and him crucified. A sermon without Christ in it is like a loaf of bread without any flour in it. No Christ in your sermon, sir, then go home and never preach again until you have something worth preaching. I, I, I love the softness of Spurgeon. <laughs> uh, he, he was passionate about the Lord Jesus Christ. And the main focus of these first few verses is that we need to be too. And it is our privilege that we can have this focus because of what it means to us personally as the people of God. The second point this morning, and a little faster, verses four and five reveals the power to overcome the spirits. Look at verse four. Little children, you are from God, and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. And perhaps you've used this verse to support many claims of greatness for yourself, it's good to use this verse, but let me tell you in the context what it means. It means that the people of God who are following Jesus and confessing with their mouths and lives that they, they, they worship and serve the Jesus Christ who has come in the flesh, these people have overcome all those false messages that are in the world and the antichrist behind them. I love how it starts with little children, and it's a reminder another term of endearment, that we are beloved to God. But I think there's also a caution of our vulnerability. Little children are vulnerable. And the power to overcome false messages is not in them, but it's in Christ who lives in them. This week I dealt with a situation I've often faced. My family was in the midst of some difficulty and we were thinking through how we were gonna make ends meet in a certain way. Um, What it takes is just trust in God who always is good and always provides. But in that initial situation that we found ourselves in, I began to worry and to stress and to react accordingly. Now, you don't need to know all my details, but I think you can probably identify when you get into certain issues, you can feel stressed and worried and respond accordingly. And usually what you say is not always about Jesus and the hope of eternal glory, right? (laughs) As I was talking to my my wife about this, she just spoke and encouraged me not to feel weighed down by that fear and not to feel overwhelmed by anger or anything that could come, but she said that I could focus instead on the Lord. And, And my response is very telling. And I'll share it with you, and I'm being humble here. I said, Well, I'll try my best. <laughs> and she wasn't being preachy at me. But at, the, at that moment, I, I realized later, I was actually embracing an Antichrist message. Because if my hope in that moment was just, I'll try my best, I was probably hoping in the backup Savior that some people say is Jesus, but that's not Jesus. What, what I could have done, perhaps, is look at, and I did actually look to see what the most popular sermon on YouTube was this week, and it's actually one that Oprah Winfrey posted on her YouTube page, and I'm not trying to take out Oprah here, um, but literally, this is the most popular sermon, and it's had millions and millions of views. I could have taken the advice of this particular preacher and he said, get up in the morning and invite good things into your life. Say, I am blessed, I am strong, I am talented, I am disciplined, I am focused, I am prosperous. When you talk like that, talent gets summoned by Almighty God, go find that person. Health, strength, abundance, discipline starts heading your way. Now to be fair to this brother, or maybe not, I want to be careful to figure out what does he say about Jesus. But do you know, in the 28 minutes, which you may be wishing that I would preach just 28 minutes, so I'm going to end soon. In the 28 minutes that he preached, he didn't mention the name of Jesus one time. Now I'm not saying you insert Jesus in there and automatically it's a good sermon. But what I am saying is, if you're going to talk about how to respond to the difficulties of life, and you don't mention the man who walked through them with perfect clarity and who redeems us out of our sinfulness in the midst of those same situations and gives us power to live, then you're, you're wrong. So I'm warned that that kind of teacher is from the world, therefore they speak from the world and the world listens to them, verse five. And that must be why that teacher wrote a book called Your Best Life Now because that's the best of what he can offer. But instead of that, Look friends, what God has said, little children, you are from God and have overcome them for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Why is that good news? Because it gets my eyes off of myself and gets them on the Lord Jesus Christ, the only one who is worthy of this life that I live or any life that any of us can live. The I am is him. And I love what Robert Murray Machine, have any of you ever heard that name? Robert Murray Machine. He was a Scottish preacher. He only lived to the age of 30. He was well known for his love for Jesus. He wrote to a friend one time and it's recorded in someone else's biography of him what he says. He says this, learn much of the Lord Jesus. For every look at yourself, take 10 looks at Christ. He is altogether lovely, such infinite majesty, and yet such meekness and grace, and all for sinners, even the chief. Live much in the smiles of God. Bask in his beams. Feel his all-seeing eye settled on you in love and repose in his almighty arms. Let your soul be filled with a heart-ravishing sense of the sweetness and excellency of Christ and all that is in him. For years now, I've had that quote, but that one line, if you can remember it, for every look at yourself, take 10 looks at Christ. I don't recommend looking in the mirror and saying, you're good enough and you're smart enough and people like you. That's not going to get you very far in life. But if you look in the mirror and you say, God, you've made me today and I am yours. Body and soul belongs to you. Please show me Christ. Christ my Lord and my all. This is the heart of the believer, and it's that attitude that reveals that you've overcome the messages of the world that would lead you away from Jesus Christ. Finally today in point three is the word to reveal the spirits. Look with me at verse six. We are from God. Do you notice that we've had a progression of that phrase from God? throughout these first six verses of chapter four. I'd encourage you sometime, like I've done, maybe take a box, or a pen rather, and draw a little box around every expression of from God, and they'll pop out to you. You'll begin to see the flow of John's thought. At the beginning he said, make sure that you test the spirits to discern every message to see whether it is from God. Remember that? And then in verse four he said, little children, you are from God. The confidence that he speaks into their lives, that they belong to God, that they actually can say to anyone, I come from God. What a a statement. But it's a different one to say, we are from God. You notice that John says that in verse six, it's a bold thing to say. And he's essentially saying, you know what, if you want to know what God says? listen to us. And who's the us? Well, that's John, Peter, Paul, those apostles who were sent out and who wrote our New Testament. Now, his, his statement is astonishing because he's basically saying what any false teacher would say, right? A false teacher would come and say, God told me to say this. And then he'll begin to say something or she'll begin to say something. Right? And the, the second thing that they tend to say is, God gave me this word just for you. And, and then they'll begin to say it. Some even profess to be Jesus, the Messiah himself. John is not saying like they are, that he is Jesus, but he is saying, I have a message and my message is God's message. Now, that's an astonishing statement. But friends, did you recognize that's the claim of the entire New Testament? The argument put forward by the New Testament is that Jesus sent out a group of men to pen the story of his life and the outflow of the glory of God in the church that he he formed by his own blood. And that now, We who have come generations later, if we want to know who has the message of God, we only have to look one place in our Bible and those who wrote it. It's an astonishing claim. We are from God. But John knew that we needed to have this message, and he had a sense that the apostles really were sent by Jesus. So the message that they wrote is from Jesus. You know, I, I read another thing. This was on Twitter this week. Someone was making an argument that Jesus never once, in the recorded words that we have about him, mentioned abortion. Therefore, he is not against abortion. But that's, that, that supposes something. That presupposes something. And it, it's true. He doesn't mention protecting the unborn. But the presupposing is this, that Jesus has nothing to do with the rest of what's been written in our Bibles. Jesus is the author of this word. And the Holy Spirit, whom God the Father and Jesus has sent, has made sure that we have every word that they wanted us to have. And so our confidence is that whatever Jesus, and sometimes the words in red, you know, my... I mean, check on this. My Bible does not have words in red. There's nothing particularly wrong with words in red, but sometimes they can make you feel like those words in red are more holy than the other words. Here's the reality. It's all from Jesus and it all points to Jesus and it's all necessary for us to grow in life and godliness. Another thing that's happening here is that when we hear preaching from God's word, it resonates, I hope in some small way that you have heard about Jesus this morning and you want to know him more. My prayer is that I could reveal him in some way and magnify him in some way that you would want to know more about him. And if you are confronted by other messages, that you would dismiss them so that you could run to Jesus. But the reality is God's people who profess to be so and confess to be God's people are tested by this word preached. Friends, you are tested and I am tested every time the word of God is preached. And the, the doctrine of the apostles comes clearly out. Whenever Sam preaches us and I'm sitting where I sit, I am responsible to receive it and not just to listen, but to take it and the word reveals whatever spirit I love right then. So my friends, the challenge to you is that listening to the word of God is no more magical than confessing Jesus is Lord, but is the reality that you have a changed heart, or you have believed the truth about Jesus, where it matters to you, and you long to hear from God in the Bible. You long to hear the preached word. There's a hunger of God's people to hear the word. And I think that's why the majority of people who come here, come here. That's what I hear time and again. We love the preaching. We love that the Bible is taught. And to that I say amen, and I want that to increase and to never be lost in the shuffle of culture or things that we're expected to say. What needs to be said is that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. And he will come again. In the meantime, what do we think of him? In the the 1700s, John Newton, the pastor and author of Amazing Grace, wrote a whole bunch of hymns, some of them not well known. He basically wrote them for his people in the church that he pastored in Olney, England. He wrote one hymn that was called What Think Ye of Christ? And I want to end with The last word or the last stanza of that hymn where he gives his answer. All throughout the hymn, he gives popular things that people say about Jesus, much as we attempted to do this morning. But at the end, he reveals what his hope is. And this is what I hope we all can say. If asked what of Jesus I think, though still my best thoughts are but poor. I say He's my meat and my drink, my life and my strength and my store, my shepherd, my husband, my friend, my savior from sin and from thrall. It's an old word that means the control of somebody else. My hope from beginning to end, my portion, my Lord, and my all. Friends, I hope that is your testimony of Jesus today. If it is not, we stand ready to help you and to serve you by pointing you to him in this word.